Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boombastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Revere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia, and I am glad you're joining us tonight. Tonight, we're going to continue our series with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson, uh, going through each one of his victims. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about four and number five. Um, and we're going to throw some stuff in between um, about life in prison, what it's like in prison for him when he, when he was first arrested to now, uh, the do's and don'ts of prison life. So we got some cool things coming up. Uh, but for tonight, we're going to continue on this series. Um, Keith really just wants to get the truth out there because um, from Victims 1, 2, and 3, um, there's a lot of things that Keith said that just weren't true, purposely said that weren't true about the victims really to help his case. Um, like from Laverne, uh, Tom, when he get, wanted to get Laverne out of prison, um, because Keith was the one that did the crime, he had to say a couple of outlandish things to get the media's attention, like, hey, I killed 180-some people and 200 people here and 100 people over there and that kind of deal. Um, and even for court, it's like, oh, well, I killed the person because uh, she wanted to charge me double for sex and this and that. And Well, a lot of that wasn't true. And Keith explains what, what were lies, what weren't lies, and why he had to say specific things to help him out in his case. Uh, so that's why we're going to go through each victim um, to really get the, the air out, if you will, get the truth out. And if you really follow Keith and study his cases, a lot of you might know this. Uh, but some people just watch a basic documentary or watch another thing, uh, a so-called you know, pseudo-psychologist talk about Keith's case. And he was analyzing Keith based on lies. Now, certainly most of it was true. Uh, I won't you know, say the person's name because mostly all most of them are you know, all full of crap. They never even reach out to the person themselves who are very accessible. Um, if you want to have an interview, especially Keith. Uh, but half of the things he was trying to analyze were facts that weren't true. And I actually left a, little, left a little message on his YouTube page saying, hey, uh, a lot of what you said, uh, I'm sure your analyzation was good, but the facts were wrong. You know, if you ne next time you want to publish a video, guy has a lot of followers, call it a guy or gal uh, before you want to make a quote-unquote professional opinion on somebody when you're analyzing facts that just aren't true. Um, so I'm all about the truth, you know. <laughs> Uh, so tonight, uh, back with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson, uh, talking about victims number four and five. So here we go. After, after number three was done, and I, I wasn't very successful in that one, as we have, have talked about, you know, they, they, they went ahead now. Uh, uh, my fourth murder happened uh, on the evening of November 8, 1992. Um, I had picked up a load of uh, Harris Ranch meats, which is out of Selma, California. I had this load was headed north. I had half a load coming off in United Grocers in Medford, Oregon. The other half was coming off in uh, Salem, which is only about a mile from this prison. And uh, on the on the morning of November 8th, I was at United Grocers in Medford, and I had delivered half the load of meat. And then I headed north, and as I drove north, I was thinking about uh, what I was going to do for the night because on the morning of the 9th, I was going to deliver at Wehrmart, which is in Salem, right behind the G.I. Joe store. And uh, I started thinking about the um, – I, I had this prostitute that I had dealt with in Wilsonville several times over the years. And so I decided I was going to head north. I was going to pull into the uh, Burns Brother truck stop there in Wilsonville, Oregon. And uh, I got parked there, went in, had uh, supper, came back on out, sat in the truck, waited for um, 
heard a proposition herself over the CB radio. And uh, so I, I just waited. It was about 9 o'clock, I guess, when uh, I heard her voice as she advertised herself over the radio. And uh, I called, and, and uh, she said she'd meet me on the third, the second well, the second row of the trucks parked there. And I got a lot of the cat calls, a lot of guys going, oh, you're going to catch AIDS, or you're going to get this, you're going to get that. And I just ignore those. And I always use protection anyway, so there was no big, I didn't think much of that. So anyway, she got, uh, I, I went to her and I, and I led her over to the truck. And as soon as we got inside, she re- recognized me as one of her regular customers. And uh, so we got uh, into negotiations when she, I paid her the $40 that she wanted. And then, uh, Climbed in bed with her, and after she got all undressed, and we enjoyed our one hour of uh, sex and and closeness. And then there was this pillow talk, you know. And she's it was raining pretty bad outside. There was just cats and dogs coming down. And they uh, she was upset that she had this job that she was a prostitute. She was out there walking around in the rain, and her pillow talk. As she complained openly about not wanting to continue on in her lifestyle, and and I was just that was like a sounding board. I was listening to this, and I thought to myself, you know, and at this time, you know, I've got to consider this is my fourth murder. I I started to think, you know, I, murder wasn't much of anything really anymore. It was just another another deed to do. And I said, what the? I was thinking, what the hell? You know, what the? All this, she's complaining about life and, and not wanting to be out there. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll do her a favor and, and, and I'll end her life, you know, just so that she won't have to be out there anymore. And I took it, I took it quite seriously thinking about this. So as she got dressed, I thought about helping her. And uh, I was looking down at her. I told her I could strangle her and put her out of her, uh, end her suffering, in other words. And, and to my surprise, she said, go for it. It's almost like it was a joke to her. She, I don't wow. think she would realize that I was serious. Mm-hmm. So I, I placed my fist over her neck and pushed. She died a short time later, within about four minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, was she serious? I'm not really, you know, I don't think she was. I, I think she was looking up. And, and she, I don't know how many other people have ever said that to her. I think I'm going to strangle you to death to help you out here. Sure. But uh, I was serious. I was I was thinking because of her pillow talk that, was, that she was uh, upset with the way, way things were going in her life, and she wanted to end it, or she wanted something different or something. But anyway, I was serious, and, and so I ended her life. And then I started thinking, now, what the hell am I going to do with her body? Where am I going to put her? Now, I took all of her money, which was about $240 of it. 40 of it was mine, of course. I had given her. And then I drove back to Stalem, and I parked behind the G.I. Joe's store, which is down down the side road. Um, I was in behind the G.I. Joe's store, and on the end of that side road was where I was going to deliver my half load of meat. And in behind the G.I. Joe's, there's uh, there's an open parking lot. It isn't, it isn't anymore. They've sealed it off because they don't want another one of these bodies ended up in the back of their parking lot. But I pulled in there, and, and it was dark. And they had this... In the back of the lot, there's a fence, about a six-foot-high chain-link fence. And I parked parallel to the fence, 
On the other side of the fence is just wooded area at the time. It's probably apartments now. But I noticed there were some blackberry bushes up against the side of the fence, and there are some old some trailers, some container trailers and dollies that the other truckers had left there. And there's one spot there I thought, well, I'm going to put her body up against this fence. And I saw piles of leaves that they'd raked up along the edge of this fence. And so I, I, I figured about all these five or four or five piles of leaves would make one big pile of leaves, which I did. I put her in this one area, and I covered it up with leaves. And, and while I was, I was doing this, I took inventory of what I had in my now. I've lost my flashlight somewhere in the process, that little white flashlight that I had in my pocket. I wonder where the hell it was. So I, I started digging around in the leaves that was covering her body. I ended up finding the flashlight, the flashlight underneath her. Oh, no. So I had to recover up with, I had to cover her back up. So mm-hmm. I had all my fingerprints on it and stuff. And so I, <laughs> I covered her back up. I got in the truck and I drove around and I, I parked over at the Wehrmacht parking lot. And the next morning, of course, about 6.30 or so, I went in and unloaded the other half of me. And then um, I drove back on out at, uh, at the end, of, after unloading it, I drove out, out past G.I. Joe's. I looked over there and I saw the big pile of leaves. And uh, I knew that no one had discovered her during the night or in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now, about two weeks later, I was at the Burns Brother truck stop there in Wilsonville. That's at exit 286, which is no longer there anymore. The truck stop is gone. But at that time, about two weeks after, about the time they found her body, there were photos of Laura and Pentland about five feet, in, about every five feet in the truck stop. It was almost like uh, they're baiting the, 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 the killer to uh, take one of the photos down oh, or yeah. as a souvenir or something. Sure. Mm-hmm. They're just baiting me. Or baiting the person, you know, and I, I, I wanted to take one down, but I didn't. I just, I looked at it and I knew who it was, and it said, "Do you know this person?" and or "Have you seen this person?" or something along the line. And I was tempted, and everywhere I looked, there was a damn photo. It was like he was following me around the truck stop. Um, so I had to get out of there. I got out. Now, when I settled this case, actually, it was. In, in three years later to the day, on November 8th of 1995, I was in Salem, Oregon, in F. Marin County, to finalize my life in writing. Took a polygraph test to prove I was their murderer. And uh, I told them, I said, now the murder happened in Washington County, which is Wilsonville. And I told them that they will want to settle the case because that's how the jurisdiction rules in murder is, is that it matters where the murder happened, not where the body ended up. And they told me, oh, it doesn't make any difference. It makes no difference whatsoever. And I said, well, it, it does make a difference. Because as soon as Washington County will find out, and they did, I was supposed to settle this within a couple of weeks. But on December 15th of 1995, I was in Washington County Court to get 37 and a half years to follow my Bennett murder case, which is another 30 years. And and the reason I'm there in Washington County is because they found out and they now wanted to to, to have me on their docket. In other words, have in their paperwork as being settled, the happy face killer settled a case in Washington County. But in order for them to have the case, they had to pay Marion County for all their investigation and to take over the deal. So they didn't oh, get wow. it for nothing. They had to they had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for the man hours 
in the investigation and everything that wow. went into the deal for me to get there. Oh, wow. I didn't know they did things like that. So they, yeah. So in order for Marion, so Marion County, you know, they, they solved the case. Basically, or I solved myself. But Washington County wanted my name on their docket, so they uh, they had to pay the the amount of money that the investigation took over in Marion County, and that's that's how that followed up. Now, like I said, I got 37 and a half years to follow my first murder conviction, which was the Bennett case, my first murder. And of course, in the story you probably heard is that I um, I had claimed that uh, she had tried to charge me double. For her sure. services, mm -hmm. and that's not true. Yeah, that's, that's not of, true. That's I, what most of the reports. Say. I had made that up. I had made that up because the system requires me to blame the victim. Mm. In order for the court things to work out, as my lawyer told me a long time ago, in, in when we were dealing with the case, that the that the way the system works is that you can't come off as being premeditated. You have to stay away from the premeditation. And, and and blame the victim and say it's their fault for some reason and then that that allows you to go after murder in the second degree if it should go to trial. Wow. And so that's why that story was was arranged that she I had to blame her and say that she tried to judge me double and that's why I killed her. Well that's not really the truth. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter was is that she in the in her pillow talk she had talked about you know, how she didn't really want to be out there. And I figured, and, and it was kind of, it was a joke. The murder was a joke to me at the time. I just, I didn't think much of murder or the getting rid of the body. It was just like, it was just, it was a, a simple thing to do. Mm. And that's the trouble with being a multiple murderer is that each one that comes along gets easier and easier to do. And it's just, it becomes nonchalant. It's just, it's like, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You don't give it. I don't give much thought to the process. I don't give much thought to the person I'm killing. I don't give much thought to anyone because once it's, the deed is done and I just drive off, it's 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 behind me. It's it's, it's no longer part of my, what what I'm dealing with. Now, people have asked me too when you mentioned the nonchalant aspect of it. When you're disposing of the bodies, like I said, you basically just put a pile of leaves over top of her, essentially in the back and the side. Um, why people ask me and make a good question why wouldn't you take more time to really dispose of a body like really like dig a hole or whatever it may be but somewhere where it'd be extremely now i know somebody's weren't found uh where you had to tell them but was was it a thought at all to really try to dispose will it never be found or you just kind of going to get out of there if well if you were to take the time to a lot of guys would take a shovel, take her out, go out in the woods and dig a hole and, and put her in a hole. And, and how long does that take? I mean, you really want to—I think it comes down to whether you're connected to the person or not. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a relative or if you're a, a friend or, you know, like you've seen a, in crime TVs where they're, they're talking about uh, the boyfriend and took the girl out and killed her and— and he wants to hide her so that no one can find her so that they can't connect it to him. Uh, there's no connection between me and Lauren Pentland other than the fact that I was a customer, one of many customers. And all I was trying to do was 
prolong the time period for her to be found. I knew she would be found, but it would take time for someone to, you know, it was a couple weeks before they found her, and the reason they found her was because there wasn't anyone picking up the leaves. It was some dogs and cats getting into the dead body. Oh, and that's how they found okay. her. Okay. They, 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 she was exposed from the animals getting to her. And that's how they were, how she was found a couple of weeks later. It mm-hmm. wasn't the fact that they weren't going to, I knew they were going to find her. I just, okay. it was just a matter of time. But all that time in between them finding her and me being gone, all, everybody that was ever in her life would become suspect before I would ever be. Sure. Was it going through your mind? So why spend why spend all that time digging a hole when I could just I basically I could have what I could have done is I could have just carried her out of my truck and threw underneath someone else's truck and drive off. It would have accomplished the same thing. Mm-hmm. The only trouble I have with, with truck stops is because I I sit in truck stops with with binoculars and I check out what's going on around me because. There's a lot of shady shit that goes on in drug stuff. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't, I, I wonder how many people are watching me getting rid of whatever. If I all of a sudden carried a body out and threw it somewhere, I wonder how many people in the truck stuff would saw me do that. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather, sure. darkness is my friend. So I have to find a place secluded and, and only there where I feel there's no eyes watching me. Can I, successfully do this and get away with it and drive up because the moment i drive out of there out of gi joe's uh the next person that comes in to gi joe's becomes suspect when the body is found sure mm-hmm. so anyone yeah. everyone that 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 before it comes after me is a suspect before i am now were you thinking in your mind of i'm getting away with this i'm getting away with this you know as we're getting to number four or well, the moment, the... the moment I got away with it was when I dropped the body off and I drove out of the parking lot and the leaves were covered. I knew the moment I moved, I got away from there and went down the Wehrmacht 100 yards, they wouldn't be looking for me at 100 yards down the road. They'd be looking for who her immediate family was, who her boyfriend was, who this was, uh, where she was killed, and so forth. So by the time they ever got around to me on, the, on, the, on, their, on their list, I wouldn't even be part. I wouldn't even be on the list. Okay, so you weren't even. You were sleeping good at night, knowing I'm probably not going to be oh, caught. Oh, I, I was. I had a good night's sleep that night. I woke up early, about you know about six o'clock, and then I drove in about six thirty and got the rest of the load off. And later that afternoon, I I stopped by a, a, a laundromat and I cleaned all my bedding and everything. So it just it was just a matter of just going through the motions of the day. Gotcha. Now, you said, do you have, I'm sorry, you said bedding. Um, was it like a mattress back there, too, you had to keep replacing? Or is it just kind of like the sheets and all that that got sold with the oh, mattress? I just had, I just had, uh, I just had blankets. I just, I'd buy the truck stop blankets. I wouldn't, uh, because I, I had a heater in the truck and an air conditioner, so I didn't really need that much of bedding. I just had a cover for my, my mattress. I had a plastic cover for my mattress, and I had the, uh, uh, the regular blankets that I would buy in a truck stop, and they're just generic blankets. Now, can you describe one thing? I asked you this last podcast, but I forgot. Um, like most people know, there is some kind of an area behind the seats 
on those kind of trucks, but can you kind of describe actually what specifically is back there? Like, what does it look like well, back there? Basically, I had a 48 inch sleeper. Basically, I have a, a mattress back there that's 30 inches wide. And it, I have a couple little cabinets there that I have for hanging my clothes. And, and I had some customized drawers I put in there. And I actually had a customized drawer that I put under the mattress. So I could have three drawers in there that I could put uh, clothing and stuff like that in. And it's just, it, you try to make the best of a small area. And it, it just, it's just a, a place that we, a lot of truckers used to call that coffins, you know, of all things. That, that's the, <laughs> sure. the sleeper was called a coffin. Yeah. And the reason they call it a coffin was because of co-drivers. When you're, most, most of the old drivers had co-drivers. They had, they run by team. They run that truck by team, and then the guy in the back would be laying down. Now, if the guy in front wrecked the truck, the guy in the back is dead in a coffin, right? Uh, and I got gotcha. most, okay. most of the sleepers back, the old sleepers were like 36-inch sleepers where you'd have to crawl through. Instead of be able to swing around and just step in, you'd have to crawl through a little cubby hole to get into the sleeper. Oh, wow. My, my old, the old 64 Kenworth I drove for years had a crawl-through sleeper. It's a nice little sleeper back there, but once you crawl in there, it is a, a, an enclosed area that's, um, you know, you just, the, the bed is only 24 inches wide. Uh, okay. So you're you're gotcha. laying in there, and you don't have much room. Now, that's if you a... brought a girl in there with you, I mean, you're going to be in close company of her really yeah. quick. Yeah. <laughs> not, not for the claustrophobic, I imagine. <laughs> But that's the basis behind now. A lot of trucks are different. Freightliner, they got away from having a separate sleeper, and then they have a unibody, which is just it's like the inside of a car. And there's no divider between the sleeper and the and the driver's area. Oh. It's just open. Gotcha. Okay. So you just kind of like turn your turn off the off the off the chair, and you're you're in the sleeper. And they get away with uh, making the sleeper smaller that way. Because they don't have the mm. divider of, of a separate unit fold that you can pull off. Gotcha. And you said you had a plastic bedding, a plastic sheet. Initially, like the first after the mattress, you had a plastic sheet. So then the quote unquote liquids or fluids from them yeah, got any, to the mattress. Any urine or anything, anything that any problem that if I piss the bed, I would cover that. You know, I just throw the. I usually would I just take the the blankets and throw them away, and then and you could get new ones. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even. But you know, sometimes I had one blanket I kept, and it was a horse blanket. Um, it was horse hair type, and it was really heavy, and it, it, it's something like it's all from a Native American gave it to me, and I kept wow. that, and that's one mm -hmm. I slept under. No. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. Now you had mentioned. But anyway. I'm sorry. So that's my fourth murder. Now one thing I want to ask you about her face, where in. You know, she's like, when you're like, well, I could just strangle you. And she's like, okay, go ahead. Once you started the strangling, what was her face like? I mean, was it like, so like, oh, crap, well, you serious? Or was it like, I'm kind of glad, like, I I, I'm at she, peace? She was, she was looking at me like, um, she wasn't, you know, she, okay, when is this going to end? When is this joke going to end? I don't think she thought I was serious. I mm. think she thought I was just joking around with her and, and, uh, and of course, by the time it was, uh, she was losing consciousness. I mean, she couldn't fight it. She would. She never fought at all. She just laid there and took it. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you. If did she, if she fought back, you'd assume that you know she didn't. Of course, you know, wasn't serious. She laid there, looked right at me, like like, okay, go for it. You know, I'm, I told her I was what I was going to do. She said, go for it, and I was like, I was I was shocked that that she just would just accept it. And I found I found that out with with most of my victims is they just accepted it as this is what's going to happen. So she wasn't trying they didn't to fight it. I was going to say she didn't try there to fight no, back at all. Okay. They knew they've dealt with this kind of behavior before from other men, I guess, and they figured that maybe when they dealt with other men, the men uh, the other men didn't follow through with it, and maybe that's gotcha. why she probably just accepted it that. She didn't believe that it was going to go all the way, and and of course, I rarely stopped at anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Definitely amazing. No, it's it's and, and like I said, it's after killing, you know, three people or you know two, and then that one that got out and got away, uh, in my third one there, and they tried to get me on the on Cincinnati and Rose case, but. Uh, I still thought I had killed her, and then of course I just it became nonchalant. It's like it, it's almost like um, entertainment in a way. Mm-hmm. For as I was driving, it was like, well, okay, I'm going to kill someone tonight. It was like I wasn't looking forward. I didn't I didn't plan ahead, but if it should come up, it came up, and I wouldn't uh, give too much thought to it. It was almost like entertainment to do this, and then of course there's an adrenaline rush for trying to get rid of the body. The body, getting rid of the body is the hardest part of murder. It really mm-hmm. is. I mean, you're, the murder is easy. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's an easy thing. Once it's done, they said, okay, now I got to take care of this and I got to get rid of the body somewhere where I'm not spotted, where there's no one that walk, walking their dog or something like that and seen, seen it move a body around. You know, so you've got to really put a lot of effort into uh, doing it discreetly to where you've got to, be, you've got to watch everything. You've got to make sure no one's watching, go out for a walk, and uh, and just look at look at things. You have to be patient. Mm-hmm. You can't get in a hurry about it. You, gotta, you have to really have to uh, put some time and effort into getting rid of the body. Once, once you put the body where it's, supposed, where it's going to be, and then drive away. Once you're driven away from that place, then I can become relaxed because then I know that I've gotten away with it. So while you weren't specifically going to places looking for somebody to kill specifically, it was always kind of in the back of your mind then, oh, it might, you know, <laughs> if, yeah, if, if mean, it happens I, I to never, come up. I didn't, I didn't think I'd, I'd go looking for one, but I often I often looked at, at the women I picked up as possible girlfriends gotcha. that they would turn mm-hmm. into a girlfriend or someone I'd be with for a while. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And it is, it, and that has happened. I mean, uh, my last victim, Julie Winningham. I mean, I met her in 1993, and we I took her all the way down to California and back, and over to Denver, and and. and uh, I put her into a. I ended up putting her in the in a, a, a room by my friend's house for about three months, and I kept coming back visiting and so forth. And uh, we we eventually just split up because my friend didn't want her in the house anymore. And then later, I meet her back at basically the same about two years later, and I end up killing her. 
Now, without going into that case too much, we'll get into that later. Was she a hitchhiker, and you, you, you initially see her at a truck stop? What's that now? Where, where did you first meet her at? So we'll get into that case at another time. But where I did met, you? I met my uh, my eighth one. I know Julie. I met her at the Burns Brothers truck stop during Troutdale. It was okay. She wasn't a truck then, stop too. Okay. And then I met her again at the same truck stop two years later. That's that's crazy. But we'll get to that one. Oh, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is that's number eight. But mm-hmm. uh, if you want to go to number five. Yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't we just make a this episode of number four and number five? Okay, so so my biggest thing uh, as as we're going along here, I we just talked about my fourth one, and we're going to go into this fifth murder, and this one happened in May of 1993 uh, down in California. I was headed to Salinas, California, to get a load of produce for Associated Grocers out of Seattle. Uh, I was empty; I, my trailer was empty, and that rarely happens. We rarely take off from Yakima and go all the way down to California and pick up a load without taking a load down there first. Uh, but they they happen to have they had to have the product back up to Seattle, so that's what we were doing. We we're running down empty and bringing back loaded trailers. And I was on my way down. And, you know, in May of 93 in Northern California, it was raining uh, pretty heavy. And, all, and when I pulled into the Petro truck stop there in, in Corning, California, um, there were the homeless people and everybody that lived out on the, underneath the bridges and whatever like that were all looking for a place dry to say, get into. And I parked in the uh, south side of the building, just about you know, about two parking spots away from the south south entrance to the building. And I walked in, and, and every standing spot was taken. Everybody was just waiting inside. They wanted to stay, get out of that of the heavy rain. And I went to the uh, uh, Iron Skillet restaurant there in the truck stop, and I stood there watching for a table or a chair to come open. And, and I saw a booth that was, uh, wasn't was cleared off yet, but the people had just got up and left. I ran over and stepped into the booth and, and sat down before it was cleaned. And it wasn't long before I had three other drivers who I didn't know. They came over and they sat down. They asked if they could sit with me. I said, yeah, old more the merrier, right? So they sat down and, and we're waiting for service to happen. And while I was while I was waiting, I was looking around the air. I mean, always, like I said before, I sat at the truck stops. So I'd be looking at at I was I was a people studier kind of like. And in a restaurant, I at the same time I I'll study the people around me and I watch what's going on because it's always it it's fun in a way to watch what's going on with everybody else. You see all kinds of hilarious things and some traveling things. But at this time, I spotted the problem they were having. They had this, a woman had come in off the street, and she was wet. She had been, looked like she was drowning, you know, in the water and everything. She's uncapped, and uh, she was starving. She was sitting on a booth uh, at, at the bar, and I uh, sitting on a, a bar stool there, and every plate of food that came by, she stared at it. You could see her, her head moving and watching the food go by, and and she was just. But they couldn't. The, the, I knew the problem they had was that the restaurant couldn't buy her a meal, and that if they if they bought her a meal, they'd have to buy every homeless person a meal. 
and so they don't do it. It's one of their their policies. I know this, and I and I. It's also I thought it was like a a, a good experiment for me. It was, it was something that was like a uh, something to to work over, and so I noticed people were pointing at her and and telling waitresses about her and stuff. So she was the problem. You know, it's like a chicken coop. One chicken will, will be the one they're picking on, and that's what they do. They go after the one chicken. And, and then when that chicken is dead, they go after another chicken. That's, that's mm. how chicken coops work, and that's how people work. <laughs> mm. That's how people do it, too. They look in a restaurant. This person had no money, and, but, and they wanted her other. Why? Because she had no money and she wasn't buying food. Sure. So when the waitress came over, and uh, was gonna was clearing off our table, and then finally came over and and handed our menus and asked us what we wanted to eat. I I, I told her I said I pointed at the at the at the girl at the counter, and and I know she was thinking I was gonna say something rude or whatever, but I said, hey, go over there and tell her to order anything off the menu, and I'll pay for it, right? Just just. Tell her to order everything off the menu, but don't tell her who, who, who's paying for it. I don't want no lost puppy humping my leg sure. <laughs> before I got the hell out of there. I just wanted her to have a meal so that everybody would quit watching her without paying attention. So the guys I was with were kind of like, you know, they were kind of like upset at me. So why were you going to do that? I said, well, it's, a, it's an experiment, right? I want to see how good our service is going to be for doing this. You know, this is where this is where the, the whole motive behind us was. I was going to say, look at the great service we're going to get. Every waitress in this place is going to come over and make sure we, our coffee is filled all the time and tell us what a great bunch of guys we are for doing this. And they looked at me like, yeah, right. And sure enough, as that, she went over and told the girl she could order what she wanted. She ordered a soup and a sandwich, and he put it on my on my ticket. And of course, she looked around looking for her sugar daddy, couldn't find him. And I was I was kind of uh, uh, across from the salad bar. I don't think she could have seen me anyway. But uh, the, the the waitresses kept coming over, making sure our coffee was filled. And and these guys were all kind of like, hey, that's really good service. I said, yeah. yeah. Look at everyone <laughs> else that's not getting this kind of service. We are. <laughs> Why? Because. I bought this girl a meal, a, sure. a meal mm-hmm. and saved them from having to kick her out, right? So we come sure. off as, as good people, right? Mm-hmm. So after our meal was up, I mean, we got up and, and let other people sit down, and, and I went over and I paid for the meal, and, and she had gotten up, and she made it over to the, uh, the driver's area, went into the restroom, and came back out and was standing by the back door looking out. At the at the rain coming down, and it was and and I know what she was thinking, and because I was thinking it too, I wouldn't want to go back out there in the yeah, rain. Of but I had to get going. Mm-hmm. I had to get going. I so I stood and she stood at the back door, uh, staring outside. And I walked over and I and and as I walked over, I see other drivers watching me, watching her, and oh, I watched them watching her. Oh, I mean, no. they were they were checking her out long before I was checking her out, right? Mm-hmm. They were they were all, it was just like the like the, the one in Florida, man. They were out there. I, I, if they could, they would have walked over and grabbed her by the arm and dragged her off into their truck. I know they would have. Mm-hmm. Well, I just stood by her and I said, um, 
uh, you could have ordered anything more than the, the super sandwich. You could have gotten anything you wanted. And I know when the moment I said that, that she knew there was something up. That sure. I was, uh, I was baiting her somewhere. And uh, so she just sat there silently. She didn't want to talk to me or anything like that. And I just openly took, started talking. So I told her I was headed to Salinas, California. I had to be there in the morning. And, uh, and then she spoke to said, I have a sister in Sacramento. She would like to see her again, kind of a conversation she's at. And I said, well, let's see, I'm, I'm headed by Sacramento. And I pointed to my truck, which is just, you know, a couple parking spots away. And I told her, I said, I had to catch up on my uh, logbook, and then I'm leaving. And when I turn my lights on, I'm going to put it in gear, and I'm going to get the hell out of there. So have a nice day, kind of like. I didn't wait. I didn't wait for an answer. I just opened the door and I walked to my semi and I got in, sat under the dome light, did my paperwork, like I told her I was going to do, and uh, I turned on the headlights and I put it in gear and I moved about five feet and I saw her open the door and run to my truck. She climbed in and we pulled out onto I-5 heading south. And uh, and she became very talkative once she got in the truck. You know, she um, she started talking about um, how life was, you know, it was, it was almost the same story I got from my prostitute friend in number four. Mm-hmm. Um, she was just, she was happy to be in a dry truck. Her hair was drying up, everything. And she actually didn't look pretty, she actually looked pretty good. You know, so she, she cleaned up, I guess the, you, could, you could say she cleaned up good. Mm-hmm. And then she, uh, she told me, I don't really, you know, she was talking about her sister the last time she was with her sister, and uh, she had stolen from her sister because she had a drug habit, and that she was she really wanted to get. It. And she kept opening up up with me. I, I I got the feeling that she wanted to stay with me and not go to Sacramento. Mm, okay. And when I I drove down and and, and rested, there was a rester coming up at Williams, and I decided to pull in there. And when I pulled in, um. I wanted to, basically, I, I pulled out my, my uh, Randall McNally maps. I had this big mapping system. It had, it had all of the states and it had all the cities and that. It had Sacramento. And I was pulling that out to say, okay, which exit do I pull into to, get, to take you where you wanted to go? And she really didn't want to deal with that. She wanted to stay there in the truck with me. She didn't really want to go to her sister, if hmm. she even had a sister in Sacramento. I was just going to ask you, do you, think, do you think she really had one? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, she said she had a sister, but it doesn't mean, you know, I've heard stories before, and I I can imagine, you know, she wanted to get out of the rain and stay out of the rain, and that's what she wanted to do. And So she she told me that, you know, while we were this in there, she looked right at me and said, the only thing, I, I don't want to get pregnant, is what she said. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, really? Yeah. I mean, this is... <laughs> Like out of nowhere, she was. That was her only only concern was she didn't want to get pregnant, and I was like, "Well, okay, you know." And, and when as she told me that she was like unbuttoning herself and and she was getting ready to go to bed, she was kind of enticing me along, and I was like, "Okay, let's do this." You know? <laughs> so yeah, I crawled in the bed with her. I used my protection. Everything was all you know, all in the up and up, and we laid there for you know about an hour, I guess, and, and I. I'd, I'd had my fill with her. I just 
said, this is enough. I was I was more willing to take her to Sacramento, but I wasn't willing to have her sit in my truck forever and ever. Mm-hmm. And I just decided sure. that, you know, maybe it would be best that she just ended, I just ended her right there. Mm. And that's what I did. I ended up killing her at that moment. And I got dressed and uh, I decided when I drove, I, 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 I just had to come up with an, a place to put her. And I knew I had it between Queen Williams and uh, and where I was headed down to uh, Gilroy and, and uh, that area there. I had to find a place. And I knew that up on Highway 152, there'd be plenty of places I could pull over and, and find a place. So that's what I did. I I drove down I-5 until I got to 152, which is down by Tananella, California. And I, I drove uh, west on 152 towards Gilroy. And if you come over the summit, about a mile down this, from the summit, there's this wide turn that sweeps off to the left, and there's a, a, a wide parking area where I could pull in two or three trucks. And I parked in there, and I was by myself, and I got out, and I walked around with um, uh, looking for a place I could put her body, and, and I found a pile of boulders about 100 yards off the roadway. And I went back, and I, I carried her over my shoulder, and I had this black and yellow flashlight. It was rubber, it was about seven inches long. And you, you hit the on-off button on the end, click, click, kind of thing. And I had a little uh, wrist thing around my wrist, on my right wrist, and, and I was carrying her over to the boulders, and when I threw her into behind the boulders, the flashlight flipped off the, uh, the grip there that was around my wrist. It broke off of it. And that's how I was able to uh, convince the police that I that 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 I put the body there was because the black and yellow flashlight was underneath the body. Yeah. Me and my yeah, okay. me and my flashlights are mm-hmm. having problems, right? I was just gonna, I was just gonna say you and flashlights don't get along together. <laughs> don't get along too well lately. So, yeah, it was one of so so I put the body there. Now her body was found by another truck driver a few weeks later, and in that case, there the coroner actually ruled it as a drug overdose. They, they, they felt because her system was so full of drugs that uh, more than likely she died of a drug overdose. So the coroner for the Santa, Clara, Santa Clarita County, which is San Jose, California, they, um, the, the coroner ruled it as a drug overdose. And when I was dealing with the Bennett case, this was one of those cases where they claimed that I was a liar, that I didn't kill this person, that she died of another drug overdose, just like the Cynthia Lynn Rose case. But in 2006, they decided to come back with a uh, new coroner's report in which they ruled no longer was it a drug overdose, it was now a murder. And in July of 2007, I was in San Jose, California, settling this, and I got a life without for this. Now, they didn't even want to touch this thing until I said, well, I did have sex with her. And they said, well, okay, then we're going we're gonna to go after you then. And they one, one of the judges thought that I had sexually assaulted her. I didn't assault her. We had a mutual sexual thing. Sure. But I, it was only after that was when I decided to kill her and just move move on to the next, at some point down the road. Now, did you strangle her, be, like, strangle her differently than everybody else? Like, usually the autopsy no. would... No. And it, then, was the, it was the same. I just put my, my the weight of my fist into her throat until she was dead. 
Okay, maybe that's why the old Sopsy didn't see it, because strangling her around her, maybe probably would have, like, well, handprints they, around. When they found the body, when they found the body, it was, you know, it was, it, it, several weeks later, and, and it was fairly warm in, in the California area, so the bugs had gotten to her, so there wasn't probably much left. Gotcha. Okay. And so only in the in the tissue that they had, they they ruled it as a drug overdose because of the the drugs in the system. Is what, what I'm believing happened. Well, what changed? You said when they brought the new coroner in, you said another autopsy was done or read the report. What was different about that person than the other person? Like why did outside the fact, aside? The fact that I, okay, so the only difference was the fact that I claimed I murdered her. Oh, okay, that's gotcha. That's the only thing they wanted to see. When they ruled it was a drug overdose initially, and then they claimed that I was a liar in the Bennett case, they're they're glad to step on that narrative of, of, of backing up Multnomah County. And then, of course, when I proved that in Multnomah County that I did kill Bennett, then of course now they fell they fell silent. They decided they weren't going to push that narrative. Then they waited they waited uh, what eleven years, and then after eleven years, they decided, okay, we're going to now make call it a murder. Because the publicity over the Bennett case is over with, and now they're going to go after this one separately, and that's how the system works. They they mm-hmm. wanted it all about this case, and then gotcha. they went after yeah. this and called it a murder because I was I was claiming it was a murder. So the mm-hmm. new coroner came in with the understanding that I was claiming it was a murder. So they just he basically crossed off drug overdose and retyped it as as a as a homicide. Gotcha. Now, when you said and and I picked mm-hmm. up and in, two, and in July of 2007, I was driven down there on a Friday. On a Monday, I was I was in court and had uh, pled to murder, and I was given life without in California. And then the following day, I was driven back to Oregon. There was a and, and the amount of press that that covered it was maybe a. A small paragraph on the back page of some of the metro section. Oh, there wasn't wow. much. Mm. It was it was just buried because they it was just done. It was a done deal, um, and that's how that case developed. It was uh, it, it was it wasn't much of a case. They just they were just you know you know getting the paperwork done and, and pushing it back. Now while I was in San Jose, I tried to get Merced County on board. As well as Riverside County on board, but they didn't want to. It only came about the Riverside only came about because my daughter was on Oprah. Uh, they okay. pushed, they okay. pushed the they pushed the Oprah, and you know she has a lot of pull, you know, on, on the news. Of course. Of and course so when does. when when my daughter was on Oprah back in in two thousand and eight, only then did they uh, in two thousand and nine bring me, you know, to Riverside County in December 2009 to settle that case. And then I picked up a 25 to life run concurrent down in Riverside. So most of my, most of my murders are being settled by the news agencies. It, it has to do with what's happening in the news. It's like my fifth murder there, just, just this last April of, of, 2022 is when she was identified as Patricia Skipple due to the mm-hmm. uh, the the DNA of you know ancestry.com. Yeah, that's... and that, they're making a big headway on that. Well, that's that's the big push on that. That's 
kind of what happened on on my fifth murder here. Now, when did you find out about the, the news that she had a name? Well, she had a name, but what the name was? I, I found it. I found out the same time everybody else told me it was happening. Oh, so just I found it in April. Man, that's. I said, hey, they're talking. You know, I was in here, and some guy comes over to my cell and says, "Hey, you're on the news again." I said, "What for?" And he said, "Another murder." And I said, "No, no, no. I, <laughs> I've already settled my case. What the hell are you talking about? Another murder?" Yeah. And he said, well, yeah, I got another murder. Another one, they identified her as, you know, as Patricia Skiffle. And I said, who the hell is Patricia Skiffle? And they said, well, that's your victim you left along Highway 152. And I said, oh, the one that I settled back in 2007, and oh, now okay. it's 2022. Mm. And, they, and the people here are thinking it's it's a new murder yeah. because <laughs> it's, in, it's in the news, right? Sure, of course. So... If, if if every time a, uh, uh, my name came up in the news, I must have a new murder, even though it's the same murder that happened back yeah, then. Yeah, of course. They said and that's how come that's how come the body count sometimes the one time went up to twenty two, because the press never caught on that they're talking about the same ones. Ah, uh, yeah. He said, "With the boulders, the area the boulders are at." Was she kind of like in plain view? He said a, a trucker no. found it. How did how did the uh, trucker find him? Wasn't just driving well, by? Well, he had to go for you know. He basically the guy parked on the same place I parked. He probably got out and walked around like I would walk around because he was waiting for logbook to catch up to him or something, or he he just wanted to go for a walk and he went for a walk a hundred yards over to where these boulders are and he probably smells something. And his nose brought him over to, oh, well, look at what I found, kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. So he had but to take But what a... they don't realize is when they call the cops on it, the first person that finds the body is a, is the first suspect until of they course. can clear him. Yeah. So he, it wasn't yeah. off the road, so he had to go for a walk. He had, he had to walk a bit. Yeah, so he went on a walk, and then the cops said, well, what were you doing two weeks ago when the body was there? Yeah. <laughs> How come are you there finding the body and this kind of thing? So this is the problem with with discovery. That's what happened in the Bennett case. You know, within hours, of, you know, ten hours of her being put there, the first people that that came across her were bicycle riders. Well, I when I left the body there, the Bennett case, I I was wearing bicycle riding shoes. Oh yeah, remember you told me that. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they're they're suspects number one because they're bicycle riders because <laughs> exactly. they found the body. Exactly. Yeah. And I could bet you that the bicycle shoes that I threw off the side of I eighty four on the way back to Trotdale are probably still there, mm. somewhere yeah. along the roadway. I mean, there's yeah. certainly someone would someone would 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 actually walk along the road there between. Uh, exit 22 and exit 17 is only five miles, and maybe find the blue colored was, Cannondale bicycle shoes that are size 13. I was just going to ask you, what One size are they? A mile down the road. So anybody in that local area, you know, you you have a mission. Yeah, you need to have a new mission. You have a mission. <laughs> Go find those bicycle shoes. They're size 13 Cannondale. They, they're probably still there. One here and one about a mile down the road. They weren't full, thrown at the same spot, but they're on the westbound lane of I-84 uh, on the Columbia River side of the highway. I threw them over the guardrail. All right, now we got a scavenger hunt. Yeah, so anybody listening? Now we have you know? a scavenger hunt. <laughs> and we can see whether or not they can still find those. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. 
No doubt yeah. about it. If you find them, let me know. Send me a picture. Yeah. You know, verifying with Keith. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll give you a prize. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, hysterical. they have a, the, the, the bottom of their soles are, are hard, and they have a rip, you know, just a straight rip sole on it that Cannondale has. So anyway, that would be a good, good, good scavenger hunt for the people that want to go look. Now, yeah. one question I had when you're mentioning that, okay, I just kind of want to get rid of her or, you know, how far from California? Like, what was what was your your mindset of, okay, I'm just going to drop her off to get rid of her, or I'm just going to kill her to get rid of her? What was the thought process of, like, weighing those two options where, all right, I'll just finish the drive and I'll be done with her, or I'll just kill her now? Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I had thought about, you know, I thought, you know, I could have just taken her with me and traveled around for a couple of days, then got rid of her. Oh, so you, you, know, still, you still had a couple of days ago like then. Make, you know, allow her to stay nice and warm and dry and, and feed her and stuff. And maybe I might have not have got rid of her at all. It, I often think back on this. I think, well, maybe I was a little hasty in my decision. That maybe I could have just, you know, she might have worked out to be pretty good friends. You know, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I was, uh, my problem was, uh, I just thought, you know, when she was talking about not wanting to go back now to see her sister because of uh, she had stolen from her the last time she was there or something along those lines. I, I, I just fathomed the idea that maybe it was, it was best that she wasn't around anymore because she was a thief mm-hmm. and she was on drugs and so forth. One of my biggest vices that I was raised with is that not to be a drug addict. Oh, my okay. father was really pushed down on us about doing drugs. Now, oh, alcohol gotcha. is one thing, but, but being a drug addict, no. That was mm-hmm. a that was a, a crazy vice to stay away from. Gotcha. Now, how many? Now, you let me ask you this question too. Do you think, as far as the killing went, it was almost like an addiction to you? Like, not that you were seeking it, but it's almost like like that little high you get, you know, doing something maybe you shouldn't do it, or something. It is like an addiction. You can't get away from it. It's always there. there it, the, the thought is always there. You can't walk away from it. Well, without I can't. I couldn't walk into a place without thinking about people there looking at them, and mm-hmm. if they looked at me the wrong way, thinking I could do them. You know, mm-hmm. is that men and <laughs> women know, too? I could do you real easy. It's like watching the John Wayne movie there with the one guy, the Indian there's with him. He says I could kill him real easy, okay, mm-hmm. or whatever, and. And, and his son says, in cold blood? Well, <laughs> yeah. you're a little squeamish, are you? <laughs> yeah. Now, did that go for, like, men, yeah. too? Like, men who pissed you off in any way? Or is it more, for some reason, just towards women? Or even, like, guys? If guys kind of overstep their bounds, well, the same I, thoughts? I've had issues with guys. I've, I've had issues when I give rides to guys and so on. And the problem is that when you tell a guy to back off, you don't know who you're messing with, they usually back off. Okay, gotcha. Because they they know what they're dealing with. They know they're dealing with someone that would wouldn't hesitate. Whereas a mm-hmm. woman, I mean, she's you tell her that you're gonna you know what to do, where to go, or whatever like that, and she looks at you like, yeah, right. Gotcha. Okay. Like 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 that's gonna happen. She says you want me here because I'm I'm just special or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 the way they're raised. I, I think it's just the way they're raised. They feel that there's that they we owe it to them. Us men owe it to them, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to ballpark, um, obviously you didn't kill every woman who got in your truck. If you were to ballpark, 
How many women do you think you've given a ride to? It was just a normal ride. Whether you had sex or not sex, whatever, but you just given a ride to. Without, with just giving them a ride? Oh, yeah. I mean, you could have oh, hung uh, up with them, too. But in general, you know, the one who, quote, unquote, made it out alive. Oh, how many women do you think, approximately? Oh, shoot. 60, 70 of them, I guess. Oh, wow. Okay. So that many. Yeah. I mean, I picked up uh, three gals one time there from Troutdale, and I was giving a ride all the way. I drove them all the way to their home up there in uh, Zillow, wow. Washington. Wow. And, and they were... Uh, and I was happily married at the time, and I didn't think about reaching over and grabbing a little, you know, as I was driving them. I was, I thought about it, but I was, at the same time, I knew better. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was just, it was just, I was providing a ride for me. I was actually called on the radio from the uh, dispatcher at the at the truck stop asking, looking for safe passage to Zilla, and I was like, well, I know where Zilla is. It's only about six miles from my house. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was I gave I gave them a ride and uh, drove right to their house, drove right up their driveway, matter of fact. And uh, their father came. Uh, their father came out and met me out there. Yeah. How are you going to get out of here? And I said, I'll just back out. I mean, this is no big deal. This is yeah. when you when you drive semi for a living, it becomes like driving a car. I back yeah, in and yeah. out of in and around corners and stuff like that, and think nothing of it. Now was this before? All these rides before the first murder, or even after the first murder, you were still oh, giving just normal rides. Oh, okay. All, oh, okay. All mixed up. All mixed up. I mean, I, I, I've driven lots of different places. All right. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Keith Jesperson, the Happy Face Killer, is going to great detail about his fourth and fifth victims. Uh, just imagine. Because there are many people out there, men and women, who he's given a ride to, specifically women who I'm sure recognized his face um, all over the news, thinking I was in his truck. You know, he gave me a ride from here to there. Um, Maybe, you know, something was odd about him, or maybe he thought he was the greatest guy ever. He was funny. Obviously, you you heard their conversations. He's a funny guy, and sometimes you're listening along, and you start laughing. You're like, holy crap, I just laughed at this. I I couldn't believe I just laughed at that when he said this. And um, it's it's amazing Uh, how many people actually were in a car with him that he didn't kill at all. Um, it's definitely amazing. Um, so obviously we got a lot more stuff with Keith coming up six, seven, and eight. Um, so keep your eyes out for that. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the last few episodes, especially Dr. Scott Bond. Man, that was a great episode. Um, and a funny story. I, after uh, talking with him, after we, uh, paused the podcast, um, and we talked for maybe another 15, 20 minutes or so, and he was telling me about the podcast that he was doing on BTK and and, um, and also David Berkowitz, who's kind of going through now. So, you know, next couple of days I was taking, you know, take rides on my bike and uh, down to the beach and stuff on nice days. So I listened to the first episode he did with Dennis Rader. It was just him talking about his experiences, writing back and forth with him. Uh, the second episode uh, with BTK was, we believe that was the, the women, uh, a woman who was one of his... Uh, uh, guards, uh, especially the overnights, kind of like the, the fill-in guard, if you will, her experiences with him, which, you know, were all positive. And then uh, someone who was on the police team or detective team or whatever team he was on uh, who caught BTK was great. And the last episode I was listening to, we had BTK's daughter, uh, Carrie, uh, on there. Well, when I started listening to that, I'm in my kitchen cooking me a big old fat steak because that's what I do. And as I'm listening, it, it podcast just started. 
she says, yeah, I mean, I appreciate, you know, coming on here in a podcast, you know, and it's nice. And, um, yeah, I get asked a lot. And, like, this one guy was asking me questions and sent me messages. And I looked at his Instagram page, and I noticed he had my dad's masks, the murder masks, hanging up on his wall. And next to that, he had a, some artwork from the Happy Face killer, killer Keith Jesperson. And I'm thinking to myself, that sounds familiar. So, and this is, oh, then I went to his YouTube page or another social media page, and I saw that he got a visit from the FBI. I'm like, holy balls, he's talking about me. <laughs> you know, just imagine that feeling. You listen to a podcast, one of the most world-renowned criminologists, talking to one of the world world's most famous and dangerous serial killer's daughter, and the first things he talks about is me. <laughs> you know, little old me. You know, I was like, holy crap, because we did, we had a couple of interactions, I mean, carry online, um, with like a hi and goodbye kind of thing, but I did want to get her on the podcast, but I guess she looked into me, and without really getting to know me, what I was really about, like, I, um, yeah, I might be a, a little dark and twisted, and, you know, hang some of the stuff on my wall, but from listening to my podcast, I hope you realize I do have a good heart, I do, it is called The Lighter Side, um, the books I write it is about rehabilitation and positive things and showing kindness and mercy uh, to people. Yes, who've done evil things, but it is uh, for the long term, hopefully for the good, to make change in people's lives, bring awareness to mental instability. But I understand. You know? I understand she has some triggers uh, for sure. So I, I called Dr. Bond and uh, he got a big kick out of that. And as of now, hopefully, you know, he invited me on to his podcast to talk about the Murderbilia market. It's really not called Murderbilia anymore. It's really true crime art, true crime collectibles. Because um, you found out my collection, I showed him you know, a few things. I probably have about 30 pieces from Jesperson and um, you know, tons of different stuff. Even from BTK, uh, my few interactions with him. I got a lot of stuff um, from BTK artwork and, and you know, a couple letters and all that. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. I'll make everybody aware. Uh, don't forget, the, uh, at least the Keswick Theater in the South Jersey area, Dr. Bond's taking the show. Uh, what culture, the culture's fascination about serial killers. I'm not sure there's any tickets left, but go to Keswick Theater, check it out. I think it's about a 15 tour. Uh, if this does well next year, it's going to be like a 50 city tour. Uh, so that should be awesome. So hopefully this goes well. Uh, find him on social media and give him a follow and a like. Tell him you heard the podcast here. Follow him. Tell me you mentioned, mentioned my name in the podcast. Give him a little bit of love. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we got some good stuff coming up. I got a couple new people who have been calling me. Uh, I'll give you a little tease. One is William Howe. Um, so we'll hopefully have him on the show soon. And other than that, there's only one thing to say. And you know what that is? See ya! See ya!